This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. So we began walking through Paul's second letter to Timothy a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to continue that study today. And so I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look today at verses 13 through 18 here at the end of chapter 1 and talk about some keystones of Christian living. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and let's look there at verses 13 through 18. You'll find that in your copy of God's Word. And let's read it and then dig in to it together. 2 Timothy 1 and beginning with verse 13. The Apostle Paul says, Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of, of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was at Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. Let's pray. Father, now as, as we've, we've read your word, we pray that you would, you would take this passage today and open our minds and hearts. We pray that you would, you would target it right to the point of our deepest need. Lord, that, that as we just sung, that we be be hanging on every word that you would have to say to us through your word, through the power of your spirit. Beautiful things can happen when your spirit moves. And we pray that he would move now. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in architecture, a, a keystone is a wedge-shaped stone, and it's at the top of an arch, and it's the stone that holds all the other stones together. So the keystone is a stone that has a disproportionate impact on all the others. Sometimes we talk about keystone habits. And these are, are habits that have a disproportionate impact on the, the rest of our lives. You know, think about working out, for, for instance. You know, um, you, know if you, you take 30 minutes a day, 60 minutes a day, or whatever... And, and you work out, and it's just, it's that limited time frame. It's half an hour, an hour, you know, but it impacts the other 23 hours, right? Because it gives us more energy, and our bodies are healthier, and we sleep better, and, and, and lots of other things come from, that's why it's a, it's a keystone habit. In, in, in First Timothy, you know, Paul talked about in, in chapter 4 how, you know, uh, bodily exercise does profit some, but then he says, spiritual training 
working out spiritually profits even more because it has an eternal impact. And so, again, another keystone habit of the Christian life would be blocking out time each day just to spend that time alone with God. You know, I can give personal testimony. That, That time alone with the Lord in the mornings it's just the most precious part of my day because it impacts the whole day it impacts all of of life right a, a keystone habit today i want to talk about a couple of keystones of christian living these these are things that if they are practiced impact the the whole the rest of your of your life in christ the first one is holding on to sound doctrine. And we see that in verses 13 and 14. Let's look at it. Paul says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now, if you remember the, the, the setting here of these letters, Timothy is in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus has just been torn apart by false teaching, by by bad doctrine. And the false teachers in Ephesus did not come from outside of the church. They came from inside of the church. In fact, they they were pastors, elders in the church, right? That's why he spent so much time in 1 Timothy, you know, talking about uh, pastors and elders and how, what they are to, uh, being strong in doctrine and things like that. It's because that church had problems, false doctrine, and it hadn't come from the outside. It was an inside job, right? It's, it's, it was from within the church in the, in the leadership of the church. You know, the same thing happened in our own country. Um, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century, what really uh, led to the destruction of the, the mainline uh, Christian denominations in our own country, um, the kind of the theological liberalism that, that, that uh, eventually, that it's basically destroyed many of those denominations, it did not start in the pew, it started in the pulpit. The seminaries became liberal. And then the pastors coming out of the seminaries became uh, liberal. And then the churches became liberal. And then the churches died. And the problem here in Ephesus in the first century was it started in, with bad doctrine in the leadership of the church. And this is why Paul is speaking to Timothy as a church leader. And he is saying to him here in verses 13 and 14, Son, don't let this happen to you. So what is he telling? Hold on, verse 13. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me. Uh, we have a couple of Labrador retrievers, and I love to watch my two dogs play tug of war. You know, and uh, Jeter, will get, they'll get, Jeter will get on one end of the toy, Judge is on the other end of the toy, and the, they've got super strong jaws, and they're just, they're just, they're just pulling, and they're, they're incredibly tenacious about holding on. That's the way that we are to hold on to sound doctrine with with tenacity. But but it's not a game. Souls are at stake in our holding on to to sound sound doctrine. And look, notice here in verse 13, he says, he says, hold on to the pattern 
of sound teaching that you have heard from me. So uh, the word pattern here means a guide, a, a rule, a fixed standard. In April of 1970, our Apollo 13 mission um, suffered like a catastrophic electrical failure on board the spacecraft. And so this, is, you know, this led to the famous, the famous words as the astronauts were relaying the information, what had happened, uh, back to NASA headquarters. And they said, Houston, we have a problem. Catastrophic electrical failure, but... They had one thing that enabled them to navigate the spacecraft back to Earth. They could look outside of the, of the spacecraft and they could see the destination that they were going for. They had a guide. They had a standard that was helping them to navigate. That was the Earth itself. As Christians, we must have a fixed rule, a fixed standard, a pattern that is outside of ourself. So that we're not, we're not doing our doctrine on the basis of our own subjective you know, whims and emotions or whatever. No, we need something that is unchanging, that's a fixed standard outside of us to base our lives and doctrine on. And we have that. That standard is the word of God, the Bible. That's what Paul is talking about here. When he says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me, what did Timothy heard from him? The Old Testament, for sure, and then the, the apostolic teaching that was going to become the New Testament. In other words, the Bible. The Bible is our fixed, it's unchanging. And so that means for anything that we face, right, whether it, if it's an issue, issue of, of doctrine, you know, what's true and what's false. If it's an issue of uh, morality, what's right and what's wrong. How do we decide those questions? The question that we are always going to ask, that we must ask, is what does Scripture teach? Because Scripture is our pattern. It's our rule. It's our guide. That's what Paul is, is talking about here. He's going to say in chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for approval, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Listen, the reasons why God has blessed our church and kept it going strong here since 1827 I believe there's a twofold reason. One is the commitment of this church to missions, to, to giving, praying, going, and sending out Christian workers to the ends of the earth. The other is that this church is committed to the word of God, to believing the Bible and preaching the Bible without apology. And we will continue to do that. We must hold to what? Sound teaching. Look at it again. The pattern of sound teaching. This word is a medical metaphor. We saw it several times in 1 Timothy. It means healthy, healthy teaching. Now, by contrast, what was, what was unhealthy teaching doing? If you look at chapter 2 and verse 17, he's talking there about the, the false teaching. And he says there in chapter 2 and verse 17, their teaching will spread like gangrene. That's what false teaching does. You know, we see this in missions. You know, it's often said that when America 
uh, coughs that the world gets a cold. And that's true when it comes to, to missions as, as well. I've seen this so often. The, the corruption of the gospel and health and wealth gospel, prosperity theology that began in the American church has now been exported on an epidemic scale to Latin America and to Africa. So our, our missionaries there have to spend so much time training uh, pastors to just because to, to help to because and to help disinfect the churches there from this false teaching that really that emanated here and it spread like gangrene to other parts of the world. That's what it does. Now, as we hold on to sound doctrine, how do we do that? What is our spirit as we do that? Look at the end of verse 13. He says, we do it in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The most powerful combination is when you are orthodox in your, in your doctrine and loving in your manner. We do it with the faith and love that are in Christ, Christ Jesus. Um, notice here in chapter 2, turn to chapter 2, and, and notice what, what Paul says here to Timothy about how he's to deal, you know, with, with opponents, with people that are confused in their doctrine. He says in chapter 2, in verses 24 and 25, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents, how? With gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. So the, 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 the powerful combination is what? It's speaking the truth in love. It means that we don't compromise one iota on the word of God, right? We hold to that without apology. But in the way we, we treat people, we must do that in love. Because I'll tell you, people are not, not going to listen to the truth that we have to share if we don't love them, right? So we do it in faith and in, 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 in love. Um, now let's look, look at verse 14. He says here, guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives uh, with, within us. Now we saw this at the end of the first letter in, in, in chapter six in verse 20 of 1 Timothy. He says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you and, and literally, it means a, a deposit, as it says here, which is something precious. Precious, that it, something precious left in your hands for safekeeping, right? That's the deposit. And he says, Timothy, you are to guard that. Guard it with everything you have. That's military language. And he's going to use some military uh, metaphors in, in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. Turn to chapter 2 and look at verses 3 and 4 there. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please his commanding officer. And one of the ways we please our commanding officer is by what? Guarding the deposit that he has placed in our hands. Guarding the word of God. I love the movie, um, the book of, of Eli. And it, it pictures this uh, post this post-nuclear apocalyptic world. And uh, Denzel Washington plays this, this guy, this Christian, 
I'm surprised Hollywood let this come out, but <laughs> it's a great message. He plays a believer, and he's, he's walking through this barren, post-apocalyptic, uh, post-nuclear uh, wasteland. But it's not just that the, you know, the, the earth has been ravaged physically, it's been ravaged spiritually. Nobody knows the gospel. It's like forgotten. And Eli, this believer, is walking through this world with the one remaining copy of the Bible. And his assignment is to guard it and to pass it on. That's our assignment. That's our assignment, exactly. We are to guard the word of God and we are to pass on the word of God, right? There may be some football that will be watched in my house later on today. I can promise you there will be. We will see guys on offense and defense. The church has got to do both, right? We're on, we're, we're on defense in that we're protecting, we're guarding the word of God, but we're also on offense, passing on the, the word of God. One of our members uh, shared recently that he's found that when he invites people to our church, a lot of times the people that he's inviting to come look at him in shock because they're just not used to people inviting them to any church. That should not be the case. That should not be the case with as many Christians as we have in America. You know, people who are unchurched should have been invited invited to church time and time and time again, but it's not the case. Many of them will be shocked when you invite them, and many of them will respond positively when you invite them. And it's the same with sharing the gospel with people, right? Most people do not respond in hostility when you share the gospel. They will be grateful that you love them enough to explain the good news of Jesus to them. And as we do those things, we don't do it alone. We don't guard the gospel alone. We don't share the gospel alone. We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14 again. Guard the good deposit through what? Through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The Spirit will give you words as you share the gospel or as you defend the gospel. He will give you courage you didn't think you had. He'll give you words that you didn't have if you'll trust God and obey him. Guard the gospel, pass on the gospel, all right? So, first keystone, holding on to sound doctrine. Second, having godly friends. Verses 15 through 18 are just one of the most beautiful meditations on Christian friendship and false friendship, so-called friendship that is not really friendship. Look at verse uh, 15. He says, you know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, writing these words in verse 15 had to be incredibly painful for Paul. Phygelus and Hermogenes were, were people that he knew, the people that he had spent lots of time with. They were supposed to be friends, but they had deserted him. And it wasn't just them. It was a mass defection in Asia, the very place where he spent so much time 
I mean, Luke tells us in Acts 19 that, um, that Paul spent more, more time in Asia, and specifically in the city of Ephesus, than practically any other place. And, and yet, these very people that he had invested so much in, spent so much time with, many of them had just bugged out. They had deserted. It was painful. New Testament scholar William Mounts uh, says this, All this paints an amazing picture of an amazing man, a life filled with suffering and persecution as well as victories, and a life that was ending in what many would see as abandonment and defeat. You know, I see so many kind of, you know, posturing and posing celebrity pastors and celebrity Christians, and everybody's bragging about, you know, big crowds and great triumphs and all that. Here was Paul in a dungeon for his faith. At this point in time, Christianity is still, there aren't that many Christians. These churches that he's writing to are just tiny gatherings of people. And he's about to get his head chopped off for the gospel. And so many of his, of his colleagues have deserted him. It doesn't sound that triumphant, but see, that's the way the kingdom of God works. God takes something that looks insignificant, unimpressive, small, and he takes it and he does something beautiful and powerful with it. But at this point, I mean, it just looks bleak. You know, what, Nero, the, the, Nero's persecution was in full swing. Paul was going to be martyred very soon. Many other Christians were being martyred. And many so-called Christians had deserted, and their desertion basically kind of took a couple of forms. The word here in, uh, in, verse, in verse 15 for deserted can also be translated as apostasy. So these guys, um, had, had des- they had not only deserted Paul, they had deserted the gospel itself. And then they had deserted Paul personally. Because when he was rearrested, they didn't want to get close to him. Right? He, what did we see um, in, in, uh, earlier in this chapter? He says to Timothy in verse 8, So don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Because the temptation was, you know, if you visit a Christian like Paul who's in prison and the authorities are looking for Christians and you visit one of these Christians in prison, they could be looking for you. And so that's why these, these guys had deserted. They had basically sold their souls to save their skins. But there was one who had not done that. And one of the unsung heroes of church history. And it's this man, Onesiphorus, that he talks about in verses 16 through 18. Look at verses 16 through 18. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. Onesiphorus is the kind of friend you want to have. This is a genuinely godly friend. He was a friend of compassion. Check out verse 16. Paul says here of Onesiphorus that he, he often refreshed me. 
here's Paul down in this dungeon. You know, when he heard Onesiphorus' steps coming down the hallway, his heart soared. You know, and Onesiphorus came there with, with refreshment. We need friends like that. Friends that, that refresh us. Now, we have, sometimes we have friends that take a lot out of us, and we need friends like that. We do. But we also need friends that can pour into us, and, and friends that when we just leave their, when we leave their presence, we, just, we feel encouraged and built up. And, yeah, right? We need friends like that. Onesiphorus was not only a man of compassion, but also of courage. Paul says here in verse 16 that, that he was not ashamed of my chains. Every time that Onesiphorus visited Paul in prison, he was doing so at the risk of his own life. But he just kept coming. He kept coming. Not ashamed of his chains. Look at verse 17. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. I mean, it took a while. Paul's down in this dungeon, uh, probably in the Mamertine prison in Rome. And it took a while for Onesiphorus to even, even locate where he was. But he kept searching until he found him. You know, I think of these Israeli hostages down in these uh, Hamas dungeons and, and tunnels. You know, and just that, that little baby, that little one that turned one year old uh, in, one of these, in one of these tunnels this, this past week, the little baby uh, Kafir. Do you think that the IDF is going gonna, is gonna to quit searching for him until they find him. No, they're not. They'll keep searching. And Onesiphorus kept searching until he found the Apostle Paul. Now listen, do you have friends like this? Friends, Christian friends, that you could call at three o'clock in the morning and know that they're going to be there with courage and compassion. Friends that will never leave you or forsake you. You can find friends like that. Look around you in this room today. They are here. People like that are here. They are in the body of Christ. And as a pastor, I get to see this time and time again in our church. I see brothers and sisters rallying around one another, being there for one another through thick and thin. You find those godly friendships through involvement in the body of Christ. But there's something else here about Onesiphorus that I did not see until studying this passage in depth this week. This man has probably passed away. Look closely at the language here. Look at verse 16. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. It's as if this family has suffered a loss. Uh, turn over to chapter 4 and verse 19. Paul says there at the end of the letter, greet Prisca, or sometimes translated as Priscilla, and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. He mentions greeting Priscilla and Aquila personally, but he says greet the household of Onesiphorus as if he's no longer there. His family's there, but he 
is not there. Look at verse 16. Again here, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of, of, of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me. It's past tense as if it's something that he, that he did do but he could no, was no longer, could no longer do because he's no longer there. And then in verse 18, he says, may the Lord grant that he obtain mercy from him on that day. In other words, it's as if Paul is, is, is saying, you know, Onesiphorus, may he rest in peace and rise in glory on that day. So in all likelihood, he's passed on. Could have been martyred. Could have died of natural causes. We don't know. But he's probably dead. Paul had one friend in Rome that came to him in this dungeon and visited him and refreshed him and was not ashamed of his chains and he seems to no longer be alive. Now Paul is utterly alone and yet not alone. There's a story about um, a missionary named John Patton who first who left from Scotland 1858, and went to what were then called the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific, now Vanuatu. And he went with his wife, Mary. They leave in 1858. Within a year after arriving, Mary and their newborn baby had both died. Now later on, lots of these islanders we're going to come to Christ, but not at this point. John Patton is literally the only believer who is there, and now he's lost his family, utterly alone. And, he, and in his autobiography, he, he tells about something that happened on a specific night when he was being hunted, literally hunted, by enemies of the gospel and the fellowship with the Lord that he experienced in that. Let's look at um, these words from John Patton's autobiography. He says, I climbed into the tree. He, climbed, he, he was trying to, he's running, he's running, running for his life. He climbs up in this tree. He says, I climbed into the tree and was left alone there in the bush. The hours I spent there lived all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree and to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Well, if you have Christ, you have such a friend. 
Proverbs says he is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Let's pray together. I would ask you now, all of you in this room, all who are listening to a stream today or at any point in the future, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and King and friend? Have you entered into a love relationship with Christ as your Savior and King and friend? That could happen today. Turn to Jesus and trust him. Repent, turn from seeking to do life your way apart from him and turn to Jesus and rest in his finished work for you, his death for your sins on the cross, his resurrection from the dead and welcome him into your life as your savior and king. Take your hands off the control, yield the control of your life to Christ. He gives new life, he gives eternal life Turn to him now. Trust him. Christians, what is the Spirit saying to you through this text? How are these two keystones of Christian living going in your life? They impact everything else. And so, Father, we pray that we would be a people who will hold tenaciously to the truth of your word, that we would be people who share, pass on that good news to others. And Father, may we have friends like this and help us to be friends like this, like Onesiphorus, to others. Help us to immerse ourselves and go all in with the body of Christ, your church. Not hold back, but get involved, get immersed. And be this kind of a, of a friend to others in the body and experience this kind of love. And may all people know that we are your disciples because we love one another in this way. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. 
Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.